0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. As we mentioned on the news, an update given this morning uh, from Hamilton Police Service in regard to the vandalism on Lock Street. You remember uh, the ungovernables, which I believe March 3rd uh, went down uh, Lock Street and uh, created havoc and vandalism and such. Let's bring in Deputy Chief Hamilton Police Service Dan Kinsella. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem. Nice, uh, nice to be on with you, Scott. So, can, uh, so Dan, uh, tell us, what do we know? What update can you give us on this?
1: Well, what I can tell you is uh, that we have arrested a 31-year-old male for uh, conspiracy uh, to commit an indictable offence.
0: And what does that mean in, in layman's terms? What, uh, what what kind of charge is that?
1: Well, this, uh, this particular charge is... Um, um, it's alleged that uh, the individual did conspire with other persons to commit an indictable offence uh, of unlawful assembly while being masked and distributing documents contrary to the provisions of the criminal code.
0: What can you tell us about the person who's been charged?
1: Uh, well, what I can tell you is uh, the individual is a Hamilton resident, and um, the they will be appearing uh, uh, we expect they'll be appearing uh, before the courts later this afternoon.
0: And I, so can you mention his name? Are we allowed to do that? Or Yeah, I can tell you the name is Peter Hopperton. And what is his, his relationship to the Tower? Do we know?
1: Yeah, we believe that uh, Peter Hopperton is the operator of uh, the Tower. And uh, as we know, um, the Tower is known as a collective or an anarchist space.
0: And uh, so what ha- has any other members or uh, people within the tower uh, been involved in this in any way, do we know?
1: Well, I, I don't have that information. And I can't get into too many uh, details. However, the investigation is ongoing, and uh, we will continue to investigate and, and go where the evidence leads us and, um, and, and then uh, proceed accordingly depending on what that evidence tells us.
0: Uh, only one arrest at this point, Dan. Many are be will be asking why not more? Are there others to follow? What about those that were in, that were in the group as well? Well, it's
1: a it's a complicated investigation, as you can imagine, particularly as it relates to uh, how the people that participate and did participate uh, cover their identities, mask themselves up, those kind of things. So. Um, we are relying on the public to provide information, and they have been, and I want to give a shout-out to them uh, for their uh, continued reporting of uh, things that may help us with the investigation. So we will continue. Like I said, it is ongoing, and, uh, and we'll go to where the evidence leads us.
0: Uh, why release this name, uh, Peter Hopperton, of the Tower now? Uh, are you hoping that that may lead to uh, more people coming forward?
1: Well, that, that may be part of it, and, and it, uh, uh, the other part of it, I think it's important to uh, let the community know that uh, you know the men and women of the Hamilton Police Service are working hard on this uh, in conjunction with the community. and um, we have uh, an update and, and we wanted to provide that information because we think it's important uh, for the community to know that. And if that generates uh, further information that may come in from the community, Then that would be great, and we encourage people to call us and let us know what they know.
0: Uh, Do you attempt uh, or do you uh, anticipate further arrest, Dan?
1: Well, I, I, I can't get into that part of the information um, or or evidence. Um, What I can tell you is the investigation's ongoing, and now we have an individual before the courts. So uh, if we have any new information to uh, provide to the community, we'll certainly do that at the appropriate time.
0: Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, this person charged uh, uh, for being an organizer a- a- of such an event. What about those that follow along? Are they subject to the same sort of uh, charge or would it be something lesser? Uh, how does that play out, you know, the being a ringleader as opposed to those that are just following along?
1: Well, I, everyone's accountable for their actions, uh, particularly as it rates, relates to uh, criminal activity. And uh, everyone, you know, uh, would have participated, I, I would suggest, in various roles. Um, are we interested in those individuals that marched up Lock Street and committed the, uh, the mischief and the other criminal offenses and, you know, uh, terrified the community the way they did on March 3rd? Uh, we absolutely are. And and we will continue down the path and uh, continue to investigate. Uh,
0: what does this mean for the tower on Cannon? Uh, any charges in relation to that organization? Or wh- what will result in this property as a result of this? Will it, 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 does it change business, business as usual for them? Nothing uh,
1: related to today's uh, information release um, directly affects uh, anything at the tower. Uh, however, um, you know, we are uh, continuing to monitor the entire situation, uh, whether it be tower-related or, um, you know, anarchist-related. Uh, we are, are following information, paying attention to um, social media and those kind of things, and we'll continue to do
0: that. Any more response, Dan, since this name came out?
1: Uh, I, I don't have that information, Scott, uh, I, I usually get uh, briefings uh, and I'll get them at the re- appropriate time so I don't have any information on that for you.
0: You talked about the public's help. Uh, di- how much was the public involved with tips, so on and so forth, uh, giving you some sort of trail to follow?
1: Well, it, it, the the public's uh, support and help is uh, very important. Um, they contributed on many levels with, uh, you know, supplying uh, not only information, but other types of evidence, such as video, those kind of things. So uh, they've been uh, integral in in our ability to investigate, uh, as well as the officer's uh, commitment uh, to the investigation and the extra effort that's being put out. Um, And it really is a collaborative team effort, and and we need to keep that going.
0: You spoke about video. How much of that was used in this uh, investigation? Did it play a big part?
1: Uh, it played a part. I don't have uh, details on that. Uh, that type of evidence and that information will come out uh, at the
0: appropriate time in the court process. Uh, was this investigation difficult?
1: It, it's challenging because of the, uh, the circumstances and the types of individuals that are involved. So uh, we continue to uh, meet the challenge and continue to work on it. And, and um, you know, some, some investigations are more complex than others. And and uh, this was one of those that uh, is challenging and complex, but like I say, we're going to stay on it.
0: Obviously, uh, you mentioned you're going to stay on it, and there could be uh, other investigations that go beyond this. That being said, do you, do, does Hamilton Police feel that they've nipped this in the bud?
1: Well, uh, we are going to uh, continue. Our, our, our first and foremost uh, thing is, is public safety, and beyond that, uh, you know, a uh, quality of life for, for community residents in Hamilton. So we will continue to monitor the situation. We will continue to investigate to hold those individuals accountable uh, that caused this, uh, this particular damage and, and caused these criminal offenses. And, uh, you know, we're, the message is, is that we're out there. And if, if people get involved in things like this, they
0: will be held accountable and brought before the courts. So what happens now, Dan? Where is he now?
1: uh he is
0: uh currently uh
1: in our custody and will be appearing before the courts uh, sometime this afternoon uh, we expect
0: all right uh dan anything else you want to convey to the uh, community uh no just want to uh thank them one more time for their efforts as well as recognize the men and women of the
1: hamilton police service for the great work that they did in this
0: Uh, Deputy Chief Dan Kinsella has been with us. Hamilton Police Service update given this morning in regard to the vandalism on Lock Street and, of course, resulting in one arrest. Great work, Dan. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to 3 on AM
1: 900 CHL.
0: Lots have talked about, uh, including on this show, about the legalization of recreational marijuana, which is coming up later on this summer. Not sure of an exact date at this point. Uh, But it looks like, uh, well, Canada Day, they say, was never really uh, set in stone, no pun intended. But now they're talking about uh, towards the end of the summer, August and such for this. But of course, there's been lots of concern, uh, not only about uh, distribution and sale and supply and producers and uh, uh, enforcement as far as uh, police, that sort of thing. Also concerns about crossing the border, and we have talked about this in the past, and um, it seems that there's some senators, Canadian senators that are still, uh, and U.S. senators, that are concerned about what is going to happen when this is all legalized. Uh, And, of course, a few headed down to Washington and got a very different uh, opinion of what is going on than the vague assurances offered by Canadian officials, so says the Canadian press. Uh, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale told a Senate committee last week there's no reason why uh, legalization of marijuana in Canada should create any headaches at the border. He noted that it will remain illegal for Canadians to take cannabis across the border to the U.S., just as it will remain illegal for Americans to bring it into Canada. Since that doesn't change, Goodale argued there is no need for U.S. border officials to tighten screening of Canadians coming into their country. And of course, what the great concern is, is this will slow down greatly the transportation of people and goods across the border from Canada into the United States. To talk more about all of this, Joel Sandaluck is with his partner, my man Sandaluck Kingwell LLP, and is with us now. Joel, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Joel. We have talked about this before, and and, and what's going to happen when it comes time to cross the border. Uh, what are your thoughts on what the safety minister have to say uh, had to say? Uh, is there any reason uh, to to be concerned that there may be more headaches going across the border?
2: You know, I think there may be some more headaches going across the border. There's a, few, I mean, there's a few things that are different. On the one hand, you've got to bear in mind that there's a lot of things that are legal in Canada or the United States, but not in the other country. The best example, the most obvious example, mm. is firearms in the United States. Yeah. It's legal to have all kinds of firearms in the United States, but not Canada. And you would imagine that this, you know, if the same were to be true on the opposite side of the border, the existence of those firearms would cause massive delays for Americans entering Canada. Now, I don't know that there will be a lot of delays caused at the border, but there are going to be a lot of changes with legalization. And one of the things that seems to be the most striking is there, there are likely to be a lot of Canadians who are involved in marijuana-related industries, whether they're working on farms, uh, as grow ops, whether they're working on uh, distribution centers, even if they're working at the LCBO, they're working for a company, for an organization that distributes an illegal substance in the United States. So it'll be interesting, not so much the idea that a lot of American border officers are suddenly asking many more questions than they used to because of legalization, But the interesting thing will be whether many more Canadians who were not previously inadmissible to the United States will become inadmissible following legalization here for doing something that's perfectly legal here. Um, So it's not so much that, I don't think it will be delays so much that will be the issue. It will be, there will be a fair bit of confusion for a considerable amount of time while not only Canadians figure out how best to deal with the issues at the border, but also while border guards, Uh, try to navigate the new regulatory scheme in Canada.
0: So you think once this is implemented and the bugs worked out that this won't be any different considering the the difference in gun laws? I mean, that's a great example.
3: Yeah,
2: well, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I mean, every time you cross the border, there's certain things that you know not to take. I mean, and simple things sometimes, produce, certain types of alcohol, weapons are obviously the easy one. Uh, I was at, uh, doing some research on this, and somebody at my office pointed out that kinder surprise eggs are strictly forbidden in the United States. You can't enter, you can't bring them into oh, yes. or the U.S. for yeah. any reason. Yeah. And, you know, somehow these things don't uh, cause a delay at the border. Usually these things are addressed by education, whether it's by posting warnings for travelers or things like that. And then eventually, with the passage of time, people just learn how to deal with these issues. The thing that's going to make marijuana different, however, is it's different from a firearm in the sense that a firearm is something that you carry across the border maybe. If you own an assault rifle in the United States but you leave it at home, it's not going to be an issue for you when you cross the border. On the other hand, um, if you work for an organization that's engaged in an activity that's illegal in, in uh, the United States, you are arguably are inadmissible to that country. And I, you know, I came across a case a little while ago of three executives who were from a Vancouver-based com- company They basically manufactured a product designed to trim marijuana leaves for growers. Right. And they were denied admission. They were banned from the U.S. as a result of uh, their association with this company that they owned, despite the fact that they themselves were not criminals. They didn't use marijuana. They didn't, you know, they weren't transporting marijuana or anything like that. They were barred from the U.S. because of their involvement in an industry that's illegal in that country. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to be the new normal. But I do think it's going to be the situation for a period of time until we can kind of figure out what normal is.
0: You bring up a very valid point about the gun license, though, Joel. I mean, just because you are licensed to carry a gun doesn't mean you're necessarily bringing it across the border. I mean, what what, what about people with uh, those medical marijuana cards? I mean, just because they have a card, does that mean that you know it's assumed they're carrying it across the border with them, and that then they're non you know because they have a card, will they be uh, admissible to the states?
2: Well, you know, even with, even with the existence of these cards, I mean, there's, there's even more confusion relating to that. So what, what I've heard happen in a number of cases is that people who've been in possession of uh, medical marijuana licenses um, have been questioned about their use of marijuana before they were licensed and found to be inadmissible on that basis, not for the licensed use, which is legal in many states, but for the pre-licensed use of marijuana. How you know, can
0: you go that far back, though, Joel? I mean, yeah. gee whiz. Uh, Well, wait a sec. Wait a sec. Did you smoke marijuana before you applied for your card? How does that change things?
2: You can go back to high school. You can go back to high school. I mean, any time that you were engaged in an activity in Canada that was illegal, it was illegal here at the time and is illegal in the United States, you can be barred from admission from that country. Now, the reality is that a lot of officers at the border simply don't ask these questions. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, the truth is, the number of times I've crossed into the United States is more than I can remember. I've never been asked about this once. I think most people aren't, so and mainly it, because they don't want the answers.
0: So is there consistency here? I mean, is there? A, there, there must be a set guideline for... Uh, for for uh, border officers on on what to ask, what to do. I mean, so are you going to get, you know, are you lucky if you get one that doesn't ask or are you unlucky if you get one that does, depending on your situation? I mean, is there consistency there?
2: Not as much as there should be. I mean, one of the problems with borders, especially the border between Canada and U.S., is it's massive and it, it covers a great deal of traffic day after day and although there are there are rules there are guidelines there's relatively little supervision and border officers on both sides of the border to the canadian side as well have a great deal of autonomy in how they uh how they enforce the laws that they're required to enforce so it's not um, it's not completely open season but it's one of the things that we have very little to say about how things get done at the border or on the ground one of the issues you may remember from uh I believe it was earlier last year during the time of the uh, the Muslim ban in the United States, there were a lot of reports about border officers in the United States who were questioning Canadians uh, about their activities, about their religion, because those border officers, I think the word that was used to describe them was felt, they felt empowered. And, you know, as far as the supervision or restraint, it took a long time until you stopped hearing reports like that at the border. When it comes to marijuana... I think it depends on the, you know, the opinions or the attitudes or the biases of the individuals, officers who are meeting people at the border. How are they going to uh, enforce these laws?
0: And I guess my question here is, Joel, is that will they ask different questions? Will they ask more questions after it becomes legalized? Does the process change at all now that it's or once it becomes legalized?
2: I think there will probably be different questions. I think there may be some more questions. Um, I think they probably will be asking more or less the same number of people questions. Um, I don't think any country, whether it's Canada or the U.S., has an interest in causing massive delays at ports of entry over an issue like marijuana.
0: Uh, you brought up the situation about uh, someone who works for whatever the LCBO company is that's going to be distributing this. Um, would this get you in trouble saying that, yeah, you know, I, I, work, sell- I work in a store selling this stuff? Mind you, I, I've never been asked what my occupation is when I've crossed the border.
2: You know what? It's the, the truth. Is, I, I honestly hadn't given it any thought until uh, until today. Whether working for a you know a licensed provider uh, would be problematic, even if it was the government of Ontario. Um, the honest truth is, I don't know. I think if somebody came to my office and asked me that question, I'd have to sit down and and really puzzle it out because uh, it definitely is a marijuana related industry. Doing what you're doing in Canada, just even working at a cash register would be illegal in the United States. And, and it's, You know, so I I honestly don't know how that individual will be treated. And
0: how difficult is it it in the United States for anyone at any border, uh, simply because the laws in the United States aren't consistent? At least when our law becomes uh, law in in the summer, it will go right across the country. Now in the United States, we have some states that are in, some states that are out. So uh, that obviously creates a lot of gray area, or well, does create the gray area to start with.
2: It creates gray area in the minds of a lot of people. When you're traveling from B.C. to, say, Washington State, in which case both places uh, marijuana will be legal. But a thing that Canadians have to remember is that then when they're crossing the border, they're dealing not with the state government. They're dealing with the federal American government. And the federal government is very much opposed to uh, legalization of marijuana. And there are separate federal statutes that prohibit the use and the importation of, the, of marijuana. So the one thing, I mean, one thing Ralph Goodell was absolutely right about is that it was always illegal to bring marijuana across the border, even if you were a licensed user for for medical purposes, and it will continue to be so. So that that in and of itself isn't going to cause a change. I think in a lot of cases, the confusion is largely going to be in the minds of the people.
0: Uh, What about B.C. and Washington? Once it does become legalized in Canada, as you mentioned, both B.C. and in Washington will be legal. Will it be easier to cross the border there?
2: I think absolutely not. I think if anything, it probably the American government will be more more vigilant at those types of border crossings. How does the American
0: like, government deal with that, with a state that, of course, is disobeying federal law for all intents and purposes, and then they're trying to protect the border between two of these?
2: You know, it's funny. For years, there was sort of a tacit understanding between uh, the federal government and the state governments that had legalized marijuana use, that there would be a lack of prosecution. From what I understand those agreements or those understandings are now off. But that being said, when you're, you know, when you're entering uh, Washington State from British Columbia, you're not dealing with officials of Washington State. You're dealing with officials from the federal government, and you're dealing with people enforcing federal law. And that, that is not going to change even after legalization.
0: Uh, we, we talked about firearms, you used the, you used the example of firearms uh, versus marijuana. Uh, what about penalties, what about, um, uh, w- would it be easier to carry a gun across than it is marijuana?
2: <laughs> I've never I've never tried either, so I couldn't
0: that. would be a good experiment for you, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I'll, get, I'll see if I can get one of my article students on
0: that. <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, so where do you see this going? I mean, obvi- are we heading for a train wreck this
2: summer? No, I, I think where this is going is it's going to be headed for some confusion. It's going to be headed for some adjustment, but it'll be like everything else. I mean, the thing everybody has to remember about immigration and about border crossing is it's fundamentally a human system. And humans have a way of adjusting to changes in procedure and protocols and things like that. I don't doubt that there will be some confusion, both on the part of Canadian travelers and American border guards initially. But what's going to happen is these things will sort themselves out and they'll resolve into sort of a detente.
0: So here's the million-dollar question, Joel, and I know I've asked you guys this before. If you're crossing the border and they ask you, well, what would they ask you? Let's say, have you ever consumed marijuana in your life? What do you answer?
2: Well, if you, if you have consumed marijuana in your life um, and you don't want to admit it, the most that you can do is decline to answer the question and turn around. Um, but if you if decline,
0: you, if you decline, you'll be sent back.
2: Yeah, correct. So if, if you you've if you've got Mary if
0: you've got the kids in the car and you're heading down to Florida, you're all going home if you open your mouth.
2: If you make it, yeah. If you make an admission to marijuana use when you're crossing the American border, you stand a very good chance of being barred from the U.S.
0: So, um, are you Betty? Are you betty, Are you better to lie? Are you better to say you know what? No.
2: No, you were as I mean as a lawyer. I would tell you, just like I tell all my clients, you are never better off lying. Yeah. Um, you are. Be- if you've got something that you don't want to, you don't want to say, you're better off saying nothing at all. But
0: if you say nothing at all, are the chances are they're going to send you home?
2: Yeah, the chances are you'll be uh, you'll be uh, re- you know re- refused admission to the U.S. Uh, but you won't
0: be banned. How do border How do border states ban or how do uh, border states balance this? Because obviously, you want to keep the fle- the free flow of goods and and people that are whether it's tourism, whether it's business, uh, industry, what have you. Uh, and again, you, you're dealing with federal versus uh, state or provincial uh, law enforcement or or rules and regulations. Uh, is this going to create divisiveness?
2: It may. I mean there's always it's always a delicate balance and there's always a lot of confusion or a lot of trouble along border states when uh you know, federal interests are perceived to be at odds with local or state interests. Um but there's a balance. I mean that's part of how federalism works in both Canada and the US. That there's a balance and there's a recognition that different level of levels of governments have different uh priorities and have to be you know, and, and those accommodations have to be made. That's why I think that in this situation what'll happen is after a period of confusion, it'll level out into a period of normalcy, and and we'll all get on with our lives.
0: How is the How is the United States handling this? How are they balancing it with having a, a a federal law, and then knowing that a good number of states are saying, "Nope, sorry, we don't care," and and doing their own thing. How How do they balance that?
2: It's you know what. It's actually really hard to say. Um, there's The authority within the United States between state and federal levels um, is divided very completely. And, uh, you know, prosecutors, federal prosecutors have their briefs on what they prosecute. State prosecutors have their briefs. And, you know, when you're in the United States, you've got to be mindful not only of not violating federal law, but also not of violating state law. Uh, But what it does is it creates a very tricky uh, legal landscape within which to maneuver.
0: Come the summer or whenever this is eventually uh, legalized, do you anticipate problems, Joel? Do you anticipate a whole pile of cases, or, or do you, again, we'll just make it work?
2: Yeah. I I anticipate some cases initially, but I also expect that in time it'll it'll sort itself out, and I think we'll be back to normal. But I do I do expect there to be a little bit of extra work initially.
0: Joel Sandaluk has been with his partner, my man, Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. Joel, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHL. The final stage is upon us for the four proponents that are trying to deliver the Pier 8 development. Uh, It will require the firms to provide technical and financial proposals. To talk more about all of this, Chris Phillips is with us, the City of Hamilton's lead on the West Harbor Waterfront Project. He is with us now. Chris, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem. Appreciate uh, the time with you, Scott. So tell everybody, give us an update. Where are we with this project now?
3: Well, I don't know if we're on the final stage. I I mean, we're closing in on the final stage, but the the key milestone was passed on uh, this last uh, Wednesday, Scott, when uh, we actually had the closing date for our eight request for proposals and as you stated that uh, that was the fact that there are uh, we went through a process that pre-qualified a select group of uh, development proponents Uh, who would look to develop the Pier 8 lands uh, eventually. And um, we then put that team through, or those teams, through an RFP process, which really was about them putting forward now a key proposal or, or a very concrete proposal that gave them a description or described what it was that they were proposing to build there, as well as a financial pricing structure as well. April 4th uh, was the date of the close, and I can uh, kind of uh, tell you and and everybody else in the community that uh, we have four proposals before us. And one of the exciting parts about that, though, is the fact that as of uh, this morning, uh, those uh, public presentation materials that kind of describe the uh, development proposals are now online.
0: Uh, you can you can of course see some amazing video. Uh, go on the city's website and and see what all of this is about. Boy, there's a lot of really good video of Hamilton lately, isn't there? <laughs>
3: It sure is. I mean, it's great to see. Although, as as you know, I, I can't speak specifically about any of the any of the uh, the presentations that are online. Uh, that is uh, kind of the key element uh, uh, for our discussion here today, uh, as as this really is a, an open, transparent, and competitive process. But it is fascinating and, and fantastic to see how the four teams have really looked at the waterfront, looked at Pier Eight, looked at the surrounding area, and and really taken uh, taken um, a look at the Hamilton as a whole and how this new development kind of fits into that. So uh, so it is pretty special. Uh, it's a pretty exciting day for us as a team uh, here at the City of Hamilton, but I think it's also a pretty exciting uh, moment in time for Hamiltonians as they get a chance to kind of look at these development uh, teams and these development um, uh, kind of uh, videos and presentation materials and see what others of the of Hamilton's waterfront as well and I think everybody's going to be pretty impressed talk about Hamilton's input and how they can see all this well we, we've actually established kind of a, a unique a way to to try to garner public uh, attention and public comment on this, uh, the first is that I, I want to say that I think it's pretty unique in an RFP process such as this. We're not of, uh, uh, as far as our team goes, we're not, um, we don't uh, know of any other uh, municipality who has kind of gone through a, a process like this and actually then released presentation materials publicly. Typically, RFP processes, as this one is, is pretty strictly controlled as to how uh, the process itself unfolds. We though embedded right into this process an opportunity for the public to actually not only see them but also to comment on them. Uh, for the most part, it uh, it certainly allows uh, technology allows us to be able to do things such as the videos, uh, the the presentation renderings, as well as user stories, and and put them up on our city's website so people can see that. Uh, right now at Hamilton.ca slash West Harbour, uh, all of that material is there online. What we wanted to also do though is we didn't want to solely uh, take that as it relates to an online presence. And what we are doing is that we're doing a roadshow uh, relating to, uh, to these renderings and to presentation materials. We're taking it everywhere from the waterfront at Williams Fresh Cafe to Limeridge Mall, the public uh, library, uh, Evergreen Storefront on James Street North. As well as uh, the art gallery and um, uh, here at City Hall. So that the public can have uh, a chance to go and actually see the renderings, see the pictures, and then be, uh, be, uh, um directed to go back to the website lastly this is where the public really has an opportunity which is we're seeking uh, the public's opinion on how these proposed developments create both social environmental and economic uh, benefits for the city as well as just general comments as well so they can do that at uh, hamilton.ca slash west
0: why the different approach to this project? Uh, Chris, you were talking about how lots of times this is a closed-door process, and the people that were hired to do this do this. Why this approach?
3: I think the first is we obviously know that, uh, that there's a, a huge public um, uh, appetite uh, for the waterfront. There's a, an appetite for understanding what the city's vision is about the waterfront. And uh, to be honest, since we've had several conversations on this topic, this is a process and a vision that has taken many decades to come to fruition. So we thought that it was important uh, for the public to at least have a, have a look and feel and be able to comment uh, directly uh, on uh, their impressions of the development uh, uh, of the development's that they see uh, before them. With that said though, I do want to make sure that we're managing uh, everybody's expectations. To be clear, the public does not get an actual vote on their preference, rather the public's comments will be used to assist uh, the evaluation process as, w- as we go through. And that was a-, a nice balance to be able to provide both public commentary on the one side, but also ensure that, that the process is open, transparent, and fair to all the proponents as it relates to uh, evaluating them against the criteria that the city uh, clearly established.
0: Uh, Let's touch on that, Chris. What was the criteria? What is the basic common denominator these all have to adhere to?
3: Well, they have to adhere, first of all, to the city's vision and to our, our broad visionary uh, principles that the city has put forward uh, in many different planning uh, elements. Setting sales secondary plan is one, the recreation master plan, and most recently, as we probably discussed back in the, at the time, the uh, urban design study down there. So these are proposals that a lot of people are going, going to look at and say, hey, that looks very similar to the design that the city unveiled earlier on, and that was by, by design. Uh, because the city is the one who actually created the vision, um, the the uh, proposals or, or the proponents were asked uh, for their interpretation of that vis- uh, of that vision. Uh, what what they will be. Uh, ultimately evaluated on is that there, there's a technical proposal and then there's a financial proposal. Uh, their technical uh, proposal will be evaluated on things like the overview of their plan, the residential program, how they address placemaking, environmental sustainability, uh, as well as urban innovation, and how they plan to implement the actual construction and timing and phasing of the plan down there. On the financial side, they'll be judged on a, on a purely financial basis.
0: So what happens now? What's the timeline? What steps, what are the future steps here?
3: Public uh, consultation or the public review commenting period is between now, April 6th till April 17th. Uh, Staff, uh, city staff will be the ones evaluating the proposals uh, and we will take a recommendation to council and we're looking to take that recommendation to council on June of 2018.
0: And when will we see shovels in the ground once, you know, providing everything runs smoothly?
3: That is the question everyone wants, uh, mm. wants uh, an answer to, right? Uh, I think, first of all, I, mean, I, I will answer that, but I think, first of all, everyone should realize uh, that uh, shovels in the ground will actually start right now. Uh, we are, uh, as, as many are aware, we're doing multiple projects at the same time mm. uh, in the West Harbor waterfront. Uh, this summer, uh, and this spring, summer, and fall, uh, we'll see a huge, dramatic change in Pier 8 as we start to uh, build, as the city starts to build the Pier 8 Promenade park that stretches all the way along the periphery of Pier 8. Uh, They will start to see servicing work for uh, sewers, roads, water mains, hydro uh, on the Pier 8 lands. They will start to also see shoreline work as it relates to the area in Piers 5 to 7. uh, And that, that will then get uh, included into a new public open space in the Pier 5 to 7 area completed by next year. So shovels in the ground uh, and development ready has been a key uh, element of our plan moving forward and and we are uh, certainly achieving that in 2018. As it relates to the developments themselves or the the residential mixed use uh, commercial and institutional developments that uh, the public will be commenting on right now, our expectation is that they will start to see that work happening in 2019
0: and what has the response been so far especially now that you have opened the doors to people on this
3: i i don't really know since we just launched it uh, earlier on today scott uh, but what i can say is i just about general, general
0: general concern about this development because it, it's it's a fine line we're walking here
3: um I I think uh you know the, the general comments from the public is that uh Hamilton's waterfront is a fantastic opportunity and a, a new development in the vision that the city's put forward is something that most people are looking for. Uh you did mention that uh obviously there are some who who are, are pretty sensitive to uh to what is both happening down there and is planned to be happening down there and that's why the city's vision has been really important and that is the foundation for which this uh, whole development is being built on um will there be people who uh I- i'm sure there'll be lots of people who uh love uh what they see uh there will be some i'm sure who will uh, have comments that would be critical and that's fine that's exactly what the process is designed to do and they can go online and make those comments
0: what what do you say chris to people who are concerned that you know obviously the There's going to be uh, a lot of development there. There's going to see you're going to see increased residential units. Is that area able to handle all of those people coming in?
3: We've done ex- exhaustive studies uh, on this in this area dating back to the early 2000s. So we are well into 18, 19, even 20 years worth of work, if not b- beyond, as far as how we would look to redevelop this site. Uh, going back to what I said earlier on, I think most people, if you look at the plan and look at how the entire waterfront, whether you stretch all the way from the Barton Tiffany lands and all the way to Eastwood Park, with all the different dynamics in between, mm. Bayfront Park, Pier 4 Park, the boating. Clubs, um, the the new peer uh, uh, peer five to, to seven open space, the new promenade park, the gateway park that will be built as part of this development. I think most people should be able to look at it and say it's a pretty balanced plan. It's a balanced plan that speaks something for everybody. Um, it's a plan that is certainly made in Hamilton. It is a plan that has the style, Scott, Sorry, the uh, the um, scale of which is uh, is is a factor that most people would would like and uh i I think it's it's just a a fantastic plan to be implementing i want to make sure everybody kind of realizes again that this plan is almost 20 years in the making and Mm. and uh this is about implementing that plan and that vision that the city when they first got control of these lands in the year 2000 really wanted to look at how do we make a statement on hamilton's waterfront this is really going
0: to change that area isn't it this is very exciting
3: Extremely exciting. I mean, again, it's a it's another milestone today, um, as we just talked about. As far as shovels in the ground, uh, this does not happen overnight. It's hard uh, to believe. It been,
0: it's hard to believe we've been talking about this for almost twenty years, though.
3: It sure has. On a, on a personal note, I've been uh, on this file for about eight years, so mm. it has been about kind of ensuring that we get it right, uh, that we do it in the right way, um, and and this is just that next natural step to that. Um, you know, the pictures. Uh, as, as everyone will know, uh, the pictures uh, are, are meant to be the design of the full build-out, and uh, that will not happen for some years. But I, but I do think that it's an exciting point in time for people to look at these and say, you know what, um, uh, the, the city got the vision right. Mm. And the, and the uh, proposals that are uh, before the city now and in uh, public view uh, have really addressed the city's vision quite well. I know you
0: can't comment on the four individual designs, but they're very unique, aren't they?
3: They're all yeah, different. I think that's a great. I think that's a great description of it. And and uh, um, uh, trying to uh, bypass the discussion on the four specifically, I think what I could point to though is our. our uh, we did a, a design competition for the Promenade Park, if you recall, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, middle of last year, and I think you saw the exact same thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. When you when the city sets out parameters as it relates to here's the vision, here's what we're looking for, and you put it in the hands of professionals who are in this business every every day, uh, you see the creativity and how each one of them look at it slightly differently. And so our experience on the park actually really did lead us to this idea of the public presentation materials for this RFP. And I think uh, I think as people look at them, uh, they'll be able to comment uh, directly as to whether or not they believe uh, that the, uh, the visions as put forward by the city in, in both the secondary plan and in all of its other planning uh, has kind of been uh, been seen in these developments.
0: Uh, to someone who uh, asks you what this city will look like in 10 years and specifically about the waterfront, what would you say?
3: I think it because it we really, do. It,
0: we do have a stereotype of what this city's waterfront looks like, and, and, and here's, this is a great example of that changing. What do you say?
3: I say that, that our waterfront, especially the West Harbor waterfront, is really the front porch to the city of Hamilton. Um, many of the renderings on the videos uh, that you will see kind of do show that, but I'm a, I'm a sports fan, uh, Scott, and I always think when I, when I watch sporting events, it doesn't matter in what city that they're in, especially in cities that have waterfronts, that view that all television stations look for is that view from the water looking in towards the city. Yeah. Um, I think our visuals that we've put in place, and citizens in Hamilton and leaders in Hamilton have known this for a long, long time, that Hamilton's West Harbor waterfront really is a jewel. I think as you look at the displays of the presentation materials, as well as the displays that we've put forward... In the past, of what the entire area can look like uh, at full build out of our entire waterfront development plan, uh, it really is that front porch uh, for the city of Hamilton to look on this uh, fantastic city. I think, lastly, that it, it really balances a lot of things out. It balances the environmental. It, envi- it balances the um, recreational aspect. It balances uh, those who want to uh, have activity on the water with those who want to have activity on the land. Uh, with our housing component on this it balances uh income brackets and it's looking to balance people from all generations and all walks of life so i, I do think that that what people are going to see in the excitement of this is that we are str- not only are we building a new community down there uh, as it relates to this new development but it's not in isolation it really is with uh, the anchors that are already in place down there And, of course, you have an opportunity to see
0: what is in store for Pier 8 uh, coming up at uh, Williams Cafe, uh, Lime Ridge Mall, Hamilton Public Library, Evergreen Community Storefront, Art Gallery of Hamilton, and the City Hall Main Library, or sorry, City Hall Main Lobby. And, of course, all you have to do is go on the website and get all the details on how you can sneak a peek at what is coming to Hamilton's waterfront. Extremely exciting time. Chris Phillips has been with us, City of Hamilton's lead on the West Harbor Waterfront Project. Chris, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Scott. The
2: Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.